you don't actually change your behavior unless you've changed what's underneath it, which is your team mind, um, to use the sort of terminology that you have, which means you have to value the idea of closed loop communication. You have to value the idea that these things are important. You have to value the idea that you are actually respecting each other and that you can have a conversation with anesthesia about who's doing the damn trauma airway instead of seeing it as a fight between anesthesia and emergency medicine. So these values and beliefs that underpin what we do are things that we shape when we come together in something like a simulation. And it can be intentional, particularly if we point it out and say, you know, this has been remarkable because I think what we've done is had a conversation. People have clearly had conflicting, for instance, perspectives about how to care for the patient, but we have been able to resolve them and that's been our triumph for today, not whether the tube went in. Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. We have two awesome guests this episode. The first who you just heard in the intro is Dr. Victoria Brazil. She is a professor of emergency medicine and the director of simulation at the Gold Coast Health Service. She leads the Bonn University Translational Simulation Collaborative and is a faculty member at the Harvard Macy Institute. She's really a huge enthusiast in the world of social media and free open access to medical education, and she's the co-producer of the Simulcast podcast, uh, as well as the Harvard Macy Institute podcast. You can find her on Twitter at SocraticEM, that's S-O-C-R-A-T-I-C-E-M, or you can look her up at drvictoriabrazil.com, that's D-R-V-I-C-T-O-R-I-A-B-R-A-Z-I-L.com. Our second guest for this conversation is Dr. Andrea Austin, who is usually my totally amazing co-host here on the Emergency Mind podcast, but in this episode steps away to the other side of the microphone to be interviewed about her role in medical simulation. Dr. Austin is an emergency physician and a simulation educator, and in addition to her work here on the Emergency Mind, you can find her at andreaaustinmd.com, that's A-N-D-R-E-A-A-U-S-T-I-N-M-D.com, or you can follow her on Twitter at EMSimgal, that's E-M-S-I-M-G-A-L. As you might guess from the bios of these two incredible doctors, we're going to be focusing our conversation in this episode on medical simulation. And we're going to dig really deep into the power of simulation to both enhance and change culture, the role of both lo-fi and hi-fi simulation, and really the strength of simulation at improving performance not only in halo events, that is high acuity, low occurrence, but also the role of simulation in really digging into the more quotidian aspects of emergency performance. I think there's a ton to learn in this discussion, specifically around that last point, around the role of simulation in addressing not only what might happen, but what absolutely will happen and figuring out how to improve it. Before we get started, a reminder, if you want to get more involved in the Emergency Mind Project, you can check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and it's available on Amazon and actually essentially anywhere. Um, if you already have a copy, please consider leaving a review. That's a huge help for us. Uh, you can also connect to our newsletter. It's called Knowledge Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com slash sign up. It's been on a brief hiatus, but it is definitely coming back. Okay, all that said, let's jump into this episode. Now, a quick disclaimer, there is some slight trouble with the audio on my end only. Thankfully, our audio on the guest end comes through nice and clear. Okay, with that, I hope you enjoy. Uh, all right, so I am super excited to be here with both of you all um, doing this version of the Emergency Mind podcast. Uh, Victoria and Andrea, welcome to the show. Honored to have both of you guys. 
Well, lovely to be here, Dan. Great to be back, Dan. So uh, I'm, I'm really interested today in spending a few minutes to, to dig through the idea of the power of simulation now. Now, simulation is something we've talked about in a number of ways on this podcast before. And still, I think we've only really scratched the surface of what its potential is. Um, and I think there's a couple of different directions to take this. Uh, but I guess I'd ask, um, I guess I'd ask you all, uh, is there sort of, as you look back on your, as you look back on your arc and you look back on your career, is there a defining moment for you where you sort of like beheld the holy grail of simulation? Like when was it that you looked at it and were like, yes, this is what I want to spend my time doing. And, and what was it that made you think that? Uh, sure. Well, I think the f- <laughs> I think the first time I thought that it was for the wrong reasons. The first time I thought that was when I saw the first sim man and I went, oh, that's so cool. You can decompress attention in your thorax. <laughs> so I'll own that. I was drawn to it initially for the reasons that I think are probably the wrong reasons right now. Uh, when did I decide it was the holy grail? Well, I still don't know that it's the holy grail. When did I decide it was really important? I think uh, right back in the early 2000s uh, when I first started doing simulation training we were going on the road and going to rural um, hospitals where there were many practitioners who would only be doing resuscitation very occasionally an intubation once every six months or so and so I felt like this was such an incredible way to get that team the opportunity to practice what they did Uh, and I guess we were doing some of the things we've been talking about in terms of crisis resource management or whatever that was certainly the flavor of the month back then and I guess introducing concepts that people were actually quite good at but which who hadn't really explicitly talked about it. So I think that was probably the moment when uh, I thought this is really great for teams to work together. Uh, And prior to that, we hadn't had a lot of opportunities where teams did teamwork training. So I think simulation really, for me, became just the vehicle for which teams could start to practice together and talk together. The second generation of interest that I had was when I started to realize that behaviors were just what we see. And in fact, what simulation really was, to use my friend uh, Eve Purdy's nomenclature, was a cornerstone ritual for groups who are actually evolving into people with shared goals, cultural norms, um, shared identities, uh, and who now had values that were important and the behaviours were markers for. So I think that's my second generation of um, epiphany, which is to say that simulation is so much more powerful than the actual skills and behaviours and even conversations that we practice. Wait, wait, wait. Dig into that for me more. Tell me what you mean by that, but that we're carving out our sort of own joint cultural identity by doing sim. Yeah. So I guess some of the, we've done some research work about this. Uh, so we know that good teamwork behaviors, all the things that we observe uh, in terms of closed loop communication, effective uh, team leadership, um, effective other things that we can see lead to good behaviors, good, sorry, outcomes in teams. But those behaviors, and if you look at some of the research, people don't do those behaviors just because you train the specific skill set. And if you think about all the acronyms we've been taught for speaking up, all the admonition to closed loop communication, you don't actually change your behavior unless you've changed what's underneath it, which is your team mind, um, to use the sort of terminology that you have, which means you have to value the idea of closed loop communication. You have to value the idea that these things are important. You have to value the idea that you are actually respecting each other and that you can have a conversation with anesthesia about who's doing the damn trauma airway instead of seeing it as a fight between anesthesia and emergency medicine. 
So these values and beliefs that underpin what we do are things that we shape when we come together in something like a simulation. And it can be intentional, particularly if we point it out and say, you know, this has been remarkable because I think what we've done is had a conversation. People have clearly had conflicting, for instance, perspectives about how to care for the patient, but we have been able to resolve them and that's been our triumph for today, not whether the tube went in. And I think those are the kind of conversations that I am increasingly interested in is how we can use simulation to help shape the culture of groups uh, and between groups in order to achieve the behaviours that we know lead to the outcomes. So cool. Thank you. Thank you for elaborating on that. Andrea, I want to toss it to you for a second. What really first got you interested in SIM? And then I don't know if you want to riff off of what Victoria just said about sort of the role of SIM in building culture. Yeah, I that that was so beautifully stated. And I'm definitely going to come back to that and remind me if I need that. Uh, so my interest in SIM was later in residency. It was around probably the third year I started to think that this was actually really cool. And I think I had the reaction many p- learners do early on that initially sim was scary to me because okay i'm going in and this is i have to perform i have to show what i know and my faculty are watching me and my co-residents are watching me and so this is this is stressful just going to the sim is stressful uh but what i learned very very quickly was that the benefit that I was getting was way more than the cost, if you will, of being on stage. It was like, this is so beneficial and potentially is going to help me save a child's life that the fact that I messed something up and I have to like be humble about that and debrief it in front of my classmates is such a small price to pay for this huge payoff. Uh, was what I got to fairly quickly. And so by third year, I'm like, this is really, really cool that we get this opportunity to practice before, you know, this could potentially happen in real life. And what I noticed is the faculty that gravitated towards SIM tended to be the people that I most wanted to be like. Um, and that they were very good at running resuscitations. And they were the person that other people in the department came to when it was time to put the transvenous pacer in because they've done it in sim hundreds of times. And so it was kind of out of that like selfishness that I was like, I think this would be a really cool specialty to do because then I'm constantly practicing the scariest things And I'm learning them in such detail, like we all know as educators, you have to learn something so much more to be able to communicate and teach it, that this will be a really cool way to spend spend my life. And so it kind of came out of a (laughs) fear-based initial place. But then I think much like um, Victoria, kind of like phase two of, you know, falling in love with simulation was all the other stuff that gets to come, come with it. And something that I really like doing now is incorporating um, our debriefing practices from SIM into the resuscitation space. Um, And I think I've been able to create a lot more meaning and help myself and my team process hard things um, because of what I've been able to learn as a simulation educator. 
So I guess to loop back to what Victoria said is simulation, I've never really thought of it in the way she phrased it. It does end up, when it's done correctly, it ends up driving massive culture shifts. And I mean, at the end of the day, that's, I think we all want to work at hospitals, like Dan said, that are really good hospitals, right? You don't want to work at a crummy place. You don't want to work at a place that you wouldn't take your own family member. But you also want to work at a place where um, you trust other people and um, you feel like people have your back. And you practice that in simulation and you develop those skills. And then I have seen too many times now that there is no way unless I, I just haven't seen it happen where you're working in a place where you're doing sims on a regular basis that it doesn't transform the culture. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. The the almost dichotomy of the two roles of sim that you all have both just highlighted, right? Because there's the sim for the things that might happen, like a resuscitative hysterotomy or a, you know an emergency cricotherotomy when you when you've missed the airway in a epiglottitis patient or something. And then there's the sim that focuses on the stuff that absolutely will happen, that you just need to practice anyway, right? The high pressure communication and the debrief after a difficult event and the activation of a code STEMI team that like it absolutely will happen. And, and I wonder how and in what ways you all tune the sims slightly differently to focus on either or one of those things. Or maybe you do them both together. Maybe you do a sim on a resuscitative hysterotomy and then incorporate a debriefing part of the sim afterwards. Like, how conscious are you of of the of the goal of that on that spectrum? Mm, good question, Dan. And I think it comes down to intentionality and design and delivery and debriefing. And I think it comes down to when you're designing a particular program, what is it that you're actually trying to achieve? Because I agree, most people, particularly in emergency medicine, think we are getting ready for high acuity, low occurrence events, and everyone wants to do the resuscitative hysterotomy or the thoracotomy simulation. And yet, arguably, we have much less to learn in those situations, because I think that does come down to have you got a generic mindset where you're prepared to do what you need to do? Have you done the skills practice, excuse me, in the sim lab? But in terms of team training, which is more what I do, it's probably lower yield than really trying to rigorously reflect on our everyday work. And um, Peter Diekman and others have written about this, about learning from success and uh, really trying to understand when things go well, why they go well, and understanding so-called systems two thinking, what's the resilience in our organisation and how can we draw upon that rather than just thinking we can norm to a set of behaviours. So your question, though, was how do you do that? I mean, I think, say, if I take the example of our emergency medicine program, we have a combination of the things that worry us as well as the things that we do commonly. And then I would like to think that in our debriefing, we uh, try and discuss both of those things in terms of you will need to have a mindset for the high acuity, low occurrence events. But also, why don't we take the chance to really reflect on when it goes well, why does it go well, and how can we replicate that as much as possible? And I think, unfortunately, in debriefing, people often tend to shy away from things that went well going, we don't need to talk about that, it went well. Oh my goodness, we should talk about that when it goes well, because that's probably the key to our success in 
95% of the situation. So I think it's a combination of really being clear in your uh, philosophy or your purpose for any given program and then having the skill sets to be uh, adept in your debriefing to make the most of whatever you do do. Similar for you, Andrea? Yeah, honestly, you were kind of reading my mind. I, I think I always start with, you know, what are the the goals and the objectives and and what are the the needs of this this group? I mean, with emergency medicine residents, you know, we have a pretty good idea of what they need and we have I think we've come a long way in the simulation world to cr- to craft curriculum that meets a lot of those needs. As far as going into the interdisciplinary world and into more of the team-based simulations, I think there's a, a ton of work that that needs to be done in that space. And I mean, I actually was just reflecting on this the other day. I think I've worked as an attending in approximately 10 emergency rooms. And I know that's a, a large number given I've not been out of residency for all that many years. Um, but with the military, you move around quite a bit. And only one out of those 10 emergency departments had a regular um, sim that occurred in the emergency department that involved all team members. So I think I'm kind of straying from what you asked, uh, Dan, but I think there's a a huge need uh, for these team sims to become more dispersed. Um, And I think you know, I, I hope we have more simulation educators uh, in working on that vein because I think, like Victoria was saying, we get very attracted to these rare procedures and they are important. And I actually say to my residents that one thing is 100% for that patient, that that crike, you know, it's the whole ball game for them. Um, so we should be ready to do that. But these other skills about how you communicate with your team, uh, how you develop these shared mental models, you use every day. And every day could be better if we honed these skills. Yeah, and I'll make a comment there because we do do um, trauma sims that involve anesthesia and trauma surgery and medical imaging and all those people that you're talking about for exactly that reason. And one of the things that I think is beneficial about doing that is, of course, the interactions you have in that debrief room will also help you when you're talking to those surgeons or those anesthetists about something completely different that's not high acuity. You've just developed uh, both some specific familiarity between team members, but also some generic um, sense of respect between groups. Now, believe me, we're not perfect either. We have plenty of disagreements. But one of the things that I have learned as a sim educator is that it turns out there are multiple realities and that just because other people see things a different way doesn't mean that your way is right and their way is wrong and now I do a lot of work in cath lab and with maternity teams and with operating theatre teams and it astounds me how differently people can think about the same observed phenomenon and so I've come to spend a lot of time in debrief rooms just helping people share their perspectives and I'm amazed at what light bulb moments there are given these people work together all the time and I feel like we're probably just the same. That's that's super interesting I think in part because of the 
the times that we spend with the same people, even if we don't necessarily know them very well, versus the times that we spend in something that resembles more like a swarm team where we get people together from different skill sets and different backgrounds and perform a particular task and then sort of disperse. And I think both of those types of scenarios are really are really ripe for sim and for sim education. Um, but I, I want to focus slightly differently than that on this, on an idea that, that um, I think is important sort of no matter what we're building in the space, which is, which is enabling a growth mindset versus a performance mindset, right? So Andrea said a little bit earlier on that, like the first time that she did SIM, she was kind of nervous about it. I certainly remember that feeling. I remember feeling that there was a, a, like sort of a, for lack of a better word, like a loser and a winner in SIM. Like if you, if you do something, then you win the SIM. And if you don't do something, then you lose the SIM. And that's sort of antithetical to Victoria, a lot of what you're saying, which is that we need to focus both on the success and the failure. And we need to enable people to see this as a space to explore and to iterate and to see what goes right and what goes wrong and take from it in in all directions. So my question for you all is how do we uh, foster a system that allows people to carry that growth mindset as opposed to that, I you know, I want to win at SIM kind of mindset. Yeah, so interesting. Uh, a lot of our research work at the moment involves looking at psychological safety in a little bit of a deeper dive than most people tend to mention it, which is just saying in their pre-briefing, hey, it's a safe space here, you guys, don't worry, uh, which I think is exactly the wrong way to do that, by the way. Right. It doesn't necessarily uh, make it true just because somebody says it's it's a safe space. Absolutely. In fact, almost certainly doesn't make it true. <laughs> uh, so I think... What we need to do is recognise that exactly what Andrea talked about is at play, which is people have evaluation apprehension. And we have both looked at the sources of threats to psychological safety, some of which are that sense of having to perform in front of others. And that's particularly so for people who are new members of a group um, who may feel that they need to prove themselves. So junior registrars in our parlance uh, feel much more threatened by it, whereas the more senior registrars will feel much more, yeah, let me at it, um, because they see it as a chance to test themselves. They have got that growth mindset because they're in a different place. But there are other influences on threats to psych safety which are to do with how authentic is the experience, what is the um, communicated and obvious ethos of what's going on here. Is it that, oh, we're just going to watch you and then see if you're ready to do nights on your own? Like that is an evaluation and you're there saying it's not a test and yet it clearly is a test if that's what you're saying. So I think people's uh, preparation for SIM and cultural norms in a department around SIM and then explicit pre-briefing is so important in terms of being clear that uh, this will be hard and this will be challenging uh, and we're here to really find out the, the interesting stuff that happens when you actually are in that situation. Uh, and so I think for my mind, one of the concepts is about it being safe, not soft, not pretending that it's going to be easy and nice, uh, but it will be quite hard and we will respect your efforts and we will go into them rigorously so that you can be better. That's all easy to say. People's still, their emotional sense becomes uh, harassed and that's normal. So I think just recognising that that happens, but then in our debrief, being sort of careful to stay pretty true to that and being interested in what happened as opposed to trying to norm people just to better behaviour. So I think it does come down to uh, how are people helping each other, how are facilitators helping each other, and um, being aware that some of it is exactly what you've been talking about. We are getting people ready to perform and not being apologetic for that, but at the same time being interested in uh, what happens as opposed to merely disappointed or impressed by what happens. 
One of the things that we have found protective in these threats to psychological safety is a sense of purpose about why people are here. So in some of the interviews that we've done and some of the surveys that we've done, people have said, oh, my God, I'm so scared at SIM, but it's such a great chance for team bonding. Or they've gone, I'm so scared about SIM, but I feel like it's really good for my team leadership skills. So one of the mitigators of threats to psychic safety is this growth mindset that you're talking about, Dan, is people see the opportunities and they see the benefits of doing that. And so I think if you can communicate that those things are important and that people really feel that, that it is a great bonding experience for the team and that they are getting better at being team leaders, then that will be seen as a mitigator of some of the evaluation apprehension that you described. So I think you can't just walk into a sim and say that this is going to be a safe experience. Like Victoria was saying, it's it's too perfunctory. There has to be more prep work for that. And before I do a simulation with like a sim naive group, I actually do an introductory to sim lecture that's about 30 minutes long. And I start that with a case in which it could have gone, it was so close to a horrible outcome. And, you know, the short story on it was I was on my fourth night shift and I had not gotten a lot of sleep. And it was the last hour of my shift and a four-day-old came in crying, crying a lot. And as emergency docs, we know crying is better than not crying. And I was so close to missing checking the blood sugar. And when I left that room, I really didn't know what to do with the case. The child wasn't febrile. I was very much on the fence of like, am I going to go really aggressive on working this kid up or I'm going to not be aggressive? And I sat there for a minute and I was like, you know what? I'm going to just think about this if it was a sim. And I said, I would check a blood sugar if it was a sim. And that was that like really moment where I'm like, this is so important. And so I try to really instill in the residents like, listen, if you truly do practice like you're going to play, I promise you that there are going to be moments where you're going to, your tank is going to be so low and you're going to be able to pull something out that you essentially, it's so the track is so deep in your brain to check that blood sugar that you're not going to forget. Um, So I use that case and I I think it does uh, create an emotional, I guess this is where I'm finally going with this is, you know, I think for people to care about SIM, there has to be some emotional connection to it. And I think that story is emotionally powerful and it's a hook that um, hopefully gets people connected to that growth mindset. Like get out of your own head about your own performance and how you look in front of your peers and take it back to what really matters is the patient. And that's, that's what we're all here for. And then I would say the other thing that's really important is demonstrating that curiosity and humbleness to your learners. You know, I will tell them all the time, you know, I am very upfront with them if something goes wrong in the sim, like if there was a equipment issue or a mannequin issue, and I will be very generous with, I can see how that issue with the mannequin 
um, you know, was very kind of uh, disequilibrium. Like it, it created this confusion that, you know, may not have happened if this was an actual patient. So demonstrating that humbleness and openness. And I end every debrief with saying, if you have some feedback for me or related to this sim, uh, please come talk to me. And I also say, comma, if you don't feel comfortable talking to me, I always have a person that I think they might feel more comfortable talking to. Maybe it's a chief resident. Go talk to that person and they'll filter it back to me. All of us uh, are lucky enough to work in places where we have access to a lot of space, time, and resources for SIM, which is a really, really great thing. And SIM is already part of the emergency medicine culture. And obviously, we've talked a lot about how to make that culture more effective and better and to change that culture into a stronger version of it. But, but we all understand the role that SIM plays because you know, we do have things we need to train on that we just can't train in real life enough. And we have things that we do all the time that we need to get better at in a way that's like easy to iterate and and safe and fun. Hopefully it's fun. Most of the time it's fun. Um, And what do we do though for, or what's your advice though for the folks that are listening to this that are maybe performing in high intensity emergency adjacent spaces where either that's not part of the culture or they don't have access to that. So if I'm, if I'm a pre-hospital paramedic in a low resource setting, if I'm a jujitsu expert, if I'm a entrepreneur and I'm listening to this podcast because I care about performance under pressure, how do I take the principles of SIM and apply that outside of a space where SIM is already the culture? Yeah, really important question. And, and I think I answer that now with much less worry than I used to five years ago. I used to think that we needed a lot of the stuff that I have, uh, whereas I think now with a responsibility across our health service, not just in emergency medicine, I use a lot of techniques that involve no mannequins, no simulated patients. And I'll give you an example of that. So we've been working with a maternity group on postpartum hemorrhage and in particular the teamwork around postpartum hemorrhage. And it's very interesting because they don't have a, at least where we work, they don't have a cultural norm about roles and role allocation. And I think it's partly because the midwives and the obstetric doctors have a lot of cross skill sets. And so a lot of people can do anything in that room. So their roles aren't necessarily as clear um, by design. And then they haven't worked on that in teamwork. And so, yes, we've done some things that look like traditional sim with traditional simulated patients or mannequins working on, hey, it's a PPH, let's go in and give a blood transfusion and do the uh, bimanual um, massage and do all the drugs that we normally do for PPH. But in fact, what we found is really useful, but we can only do that, you know, once every two weeks, once a month, you don't get the numbers of dose of sim to really help people think about this all day every day and so what uh, they've designed is a game called flat maggie where they just roll out this picture of a pregnant woman onto a table they give people little roll cards and in five minutes they do a micro scenario that just involves people walking in saying hey i'm the team leader uh so drugs person what's the story and they have a little bit of information other people have a bit of information about the vital signs they talk through it they make a plan they recap they're done And then they have another scenario. And so they can do that at handover. They can do that um, in their smart courses. They can do it in in in-service times. So 
it's about the learning conversations is the answer to your question. And it's about the teams getting together, having something that represents the challenge of performance that you're trying to work on, and then getting a chance to talk about it. Uh, the other one that we often play is the sort of uh, keep talking and no one gets hurt, the bomb diffusing game. Uh, lots of other things where people can talk about shared mental models and uh, how they communicate uh, where they're up to in their performance uh, with help from others. And so I think there's lots of simulations that we can use that do not involve mannequins or simulated patients or even a whole lot of dedicated time. So and I think we've underutilized those in the sim community because we have got a lot of skills and technical skills. But I think if you look at the simulations that people do at the Harvard Business School or all sorts of other places, they are sort of cognitive level, but they all involve having a challenge, having to share information, having to share concepts, having to make decisions and prioritization. And I think so much opportunity for us to do things that are non-technology based sim. Oh wow. I love I love that so much. The flat Maggie game. I like I can't wait to I can't wait to figure out a way to play that in our ER. Like what what an amazing, what an amazing way to describe that. And that that thing you said right at the end really really strikes me because what what is it necessary? What are, what are the core necessary components to create a thing like flat Maggie in a space where you need to do it, right? And I, I think you named some of them, which is that you have to have a mission. Like, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to sim? You have to have a sense of team involvement and team buy-in in it. And you have to have, well, I guess I'd ask, do you have to have somebody outside of the sim who's watching and sort of role-playing with it? Or is it enough to just have an, an idea that you're going to sort of iterate around together? And I guess in mm. a broader sense, my question is, what are the core involvements of building something? <laughs> Yeah, no, I think you've named them quite well. And I think this comes down to when you are designing any kind of simulation intervention or team training intervention, having a deep understanding of what the team uh, constraints, opportunities, challenges and strengths are is important. And then designing the program to target those things. And in this case, it was role allocation, but it wouldn't have to be. Sometimes prioritization, decision making may be more important. The reality is all those midwives and obstetric doctors know what you need to do in a PPH. It's just about how do you get it done and distribute the workload effectively. Uh, so I think it comes down to understanding what that team is. And then your other question is, do teams need a facilitator to learn best? And I think that depends a little bit. Like I think there are some teams who are well-versed in what they're trying to do who can facilitate themselves, so to speak, and, and people are good at that. I think most teams will benefit from having a coach. And uh, so I often think about myself in that role when I work with the intensive care team or the maternity team, I, and that's how, often how I introduce myself. I said, I'm not here to tell you how to do your jobs. You know that much better than me, uh, but I am here to be your team coach and maybe hold up a mirror uh, to the performance things that you are finding troubling and maybe to ask you some questions and to get you to think about some things that might uh, that you might decide to do differently if you want to get better. Yeah. So I would echo a lot of what Victoria says. And I think it's it's interesting hearing how we have come to similar things as you progress along simulation. I think initially, as you're learning to be a simulation educator, you're very attracted to the bells and whistles and fancy mannequins. And they are exciting and they have a place. But the time that it really crystallized to me that that's not what the heart of simulation is, is when I was deployed and we didn't have access to a simulator. And we wanted the group that was there had never done a uh, thoracotomy together, an emergency thoracotomy. So me and the surgeon were like, let's just walk through it. Let's get Let's get the whole team together and let's just walk through this. And so we had one of our corpsmen get up on on the litter 
and we had the team members in there and we talked through the case and we actually got the equipment that we would need. And then we we're like, oh gosh, well, the Thor economy trays in the OR and it's tucked in this place that isn't the ED people don't know where it's at. And then we also learned that on the litter, um, which any military folks listening, um, when you try to go to put the finished shadow in, it bumps into the the part of the litter. So we learned if we had to do this, we were going to need to put a roll under the person's shoulder to bump them up to be able to get the finished shadow in. And that is such like a very, um, it's so in my mind that we would have never learned all of that without the walkthrough. So my advice is to somebody, wherever you are in whatever you do, I'm always going to tell you to make it more active. Get people out of their chairs. Stop talking about it. That's nice. Give a lecture maybe once. I don't even know if you should give the lecture. I would much prefer that you spend your time getting people out of their chairs, into their space, walking around, and actually actively thinking and operationalizing that like, oh, well, we would go get this. We'll actually go get it because half the time you find out somebody doesn't know where it's at. It's not there. It's broken. Um, so that's really the benefit. And, and that's, so you don't need to, in my opinion, even purchase a piece of simulation equipment to operationalize a lot of these concepts into your spaces. So if, if the equipment is what's stopping you from doing this in your emergency department or cath lab, then just stop that, um, and start with the walkthroughs. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Totally love it. And you're really hitting on this idea of using SIM to explore the difference between work as imagined and work as done. If you take the sort of human factors approach to all of this, right? Like you want to see how the work is done and, and then really drive into it. Geez, just, just yesterday we were operating on a, you know, a, a quick assist from a refractory V-fib arrest, trying to get them to the ECMO suite as quickly as possible. And we'd done some thinking and we'd done some planning and then we ended up, you know, we had this phenomenally wonderful approach and everybody like was hitting on all cylinders and things were great. And then we started walking to the wrong elevator. And it's just one of these like, you know, massive things where you get this whole brilliant, beautiful system. And, and at the end of the day, like, oh, you picked the wrong elevator to walk to. Thankfully, still, we had very good outcomes from the case. And it was, it was great. But, but that idea of, of deciding and, and, you know, using this to target the work is done, I think is such a powerful, powerful concept from that. Um, yeah. And if I could uh, just really emphasize that, Dan, that's, oh, sorry. What I was just going to say very quickly is I think why we're drawn to simulation is it constantly forces you to do, to actually do the thing, to actually see if it works instead of this, like in my head, this is how it's going to go. Oh, I read this uh, passage on thoracotomy, and you know, I've really reviewed it. I, th- I think I would really do a good job if that happened. Where in sim, you, you know, you got to put your money where your mouth is, and there's going to be an outcome. Um, and that is to me, I'm just so drawn to how powerful that that is, and what a you know, what a beautiful chance um, we have to make improvements when it's a sim and that wasn't after a case where we're having to discuss um, and learn that, you know, we went to the wrong elevator um, on a 
you know, on a real case. Yeah, and it really emphasizes the simulation as diagnostic role, not just uh, intervention therapeutic for our teams, but exploration is at least as important as fixing or embedding. So, so cool. Well, I, I, I want to bring us towards the end of this and, and to thank both of you all for coming on and talking about this. I think we've really hit, you know, some incredible gems, you know, from this idea of, of simulation as diagnostic to the flat Maggie game to the um, understanding the way that we can create and, and sort of generate psychological safety around our teams who are doing um, doing simulation and just just so, so cool. Um, before we end, I wonder if either or both of you want to issue a challenge to the folks listening to this, something that they can um, they can do better in the next week or better in the next shift as they get going. Uh, yeah, I'm going to maybe just pull on what we were talking about there. Find opportunity and maybe connect with something Andrew was saying about doing you know, clinical debriefing and the environment, uh, the real work environment. But also think about bringing some of this uh, team training in its simple and light way into our clinical work and actually think about how do we get together at the beginning of a shift, say hello, uh, do a equivalent of a flat Maggie game for us in four or five minutes and then set ourselves up for success on the shift. So think about simulation, not just in situ, but actually embedded within our shift as part of our um, team get-togethers and briefing at the beginning of a shift. There you go. Yeah, so my challenge would be to really try to the best of your ability and the influence that you have to extend the simulation beyond your immediate, you know, if you're an emergency physician that is just among you and and the residents, that you extend it into these interprofessional um, and interdepartmental. I think that's a really, it's a very powerful tool when I've seen it done well, you know, I actually love the idea if if there's a department that you're struggling with, well, one, I think you should do a journal club and have some drinks together because um, once people break bread together, they get along better. But then I also think you should do some sims together. Um, and I, I think it, it does um, – it gets people interacting and talking and, you know – seeing things from different perspectives and I, I, I've seen it shift culture. So that would be my challenge is I know it's laborious to make plans with other departments, but I think it's part of what we need to break down some of these silos and, and build more collaborative relationships in the hospital. Mm, lovely. So good. Andrea, Victoria, thank you both for coming on the podcast. It is totally a joy to get to talk to you about this. So much fun. Great to talk to you both. Yes. Thanks, Dan. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. 
If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. And you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right. Good luck out there.